0: From the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, this is Road to Resilience, a podcast about coping with adversity. I'm John Earl. My guest today is Dr. Sandra Lowe. She is a psychiatrist and medical director of the World Trade Center Mental Health Program here at Mount Sinai. The program cares for 9-11 responders and volunteers. We spoke on the eve of the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Dr. Lowe explained what we can learn from the most resilient 9-11 responders and she talked about some of the factors that contribute to post-traumatic growth. So without further ado, here is Dr. Sandra Lowe. A couple of weeks after this is released will be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Yes. Um, I'm wondering what you're thinking about as that day approaches.
1: Thinking about uh, a lot of things. Um, I think about some of the responders whom we have lost who have died. Due to numerous uh, conditions, I think of those who have really um, worked so hard in their treatment and are doing are doing well. I'm thinking about, you know, how ten years ago I really would not have imagined that the program would be as relevant. As it currently is, we continue to see patients coming in every week. Patients who you know, may have had some psychiatric symptoms early on and are now relapsing, or some who are just coming in for the first time. In anticipation of the 20th anniversary, we as, as clinicians know that patients have what we call anniversary reactions. That is a worsening, an exacerbation of some of their symptoms, depression or PTSD symptoms as the date approaches, because they have more memories, more associations to the date. Media is is uh, focused on 9-11. So people start having uh, these anniversary reactions usually in August. This year, we started to see them in April, May. Mm. I have to add that this being a unique year and that we are coming through a pandemic that has been an additional stressor on our population. And that has had an effect too. very likely in the exacerbations that we're seeing over the past several months.
0: Yeah. It sounds like there's still a huge need for mental health services for this population.
1: There certainly is.
0: One of the things I'm interested in are the differences between you. When we talked, you sketched out these two populations. You talked about this population of traditional responders. This is firefighters and police and a population of non-traditional responders. Those are iron workers, cleanup workers, volunteers, etc and we talked a little bit about how those two populations have different resilience trajectories and so i wanted to to go into that a little bit because that strikes me as one of the the resilience lessons of of this work so tell me a bit about that tell me who who maybe has found it easier to cope in the aftermath of 911 and why
1: yeah that's um a really important question and and it has been one of the lessons that We have learned from our experience in caring for the responders. So in um, some studies that have been done taking a look at who fares better with respect to psychiatric symptoms, it was striking that the traditional first responders actually had lower levels of PTSD symptoms. Lower than the non-traditional responders. What accounted for that? Well, one of the reasons seems to be that the traditional first responders had a greater sense of community and support within the firehouses. Uh, there's a strong community feeling there within the police stations. They they had more support in addition to that social support, which we know is going to be conducive to resilience, these individuals also had more resources. They had a better socioeconomic status very often than individuals who went in to do construction or cleanup work. So they had more access to healthcare services. They didn't have to worry as much about making sure that they were working, that their work was, was there because they knew their work was going to be there. They had sick days available where some uh, workers didn't. So there was a certain safety conferred by both the connection within their their work communities and uh, their, their resources that they had.
0: That sort of makes sense intuitively, right? If they're Imagining firefighters and and police officers being able to to meet up at the station house afterwards, and you know, swap experiences and maybe some morbid humor, um, and just sort of get by that way. Was that camaraderie? It sounds like was a big part of it.
1: Definitely, it certainly is something that the traditional responders with whom we work express that uh, they have buddies that they really relied on. And you mentioned the being able to just sit and talk. There's a very healing element in being able to share your own experience of a trauma, of a shared trauma, which is what 9-11 was. It was a trauma that a, a large group of people were going through at the same time. So being able to have that as some common ground and being able to share your experiences about the trauma is, is very helpful in protecting against severity of symptoms going forward.
0: And professional training too, I read was important. You know, traditional first responders, police and fire were, were trained and have experience um, going through potentially traumatic experiences. Whereas you know, an iron worker who was called in to, to work on the cleanup site maybe had, had never seen anything like they saw and had no training as to how to cope with that.
1: Yeah, one of the findings in um, some of the studies is that a sense of perceived preparedness and actual preparedness was also protective against development of PTSD symptoms so EMS workers FDMY and YPD they actually have preparation education instruction on what they might see in a scene of trauma they also have education about how to manage it you know what do you do so that when exposed to something that to them is is also traumatic they have something to fall back on. They, ha- they are able to say, okay, I, I, my, my chief, my mentor, uh, my boss uh, told me this is what I need to do. And that clicks on and they're able to take some action. Whereas the construction workers, for example, who went in and encountered body parts, something that they weren't at all prepared for they had no no frame of reference for that. They had no idea what that would be like or what to do in that situation. And that resulted in more alarm, more panic, and, and just not knowing what to do in a sense of being more lost in the situation, which is frightening.
0: You know, 20 years ago wasn't the Stone Age, but it still kind of blows my mind how unprepared we I don't know who the "we" is even—society, the government—were for this event. Like, how could we not know that going to Ground Zero as a as a cleanup worker and experiencing those conditions and seeing body parts would be, you know, potentially traumatizing?
1: It wasn't the Stone Ages. You're right, but there was a lot that we didn't know. We certainly didn't know a lot about resilience. We, at that point, were doing debriefing, uh, which has been later identified as something that doesn't help and may actually hurt individuals who have seen trauma. So, even, what is even that? that.
0: What is the debriefing?
1: Debriefing is taking a group of individuals who have been exposed to some traumatic event and having them talk about it, you know, talk about what they saw, what they did. You know, On the one hand, you could say that sounds like a really good idea, but in fact, what people need after a trauma can be very individualized. Some people need to communicate with their loved ones, and that's what you need to be able to provide to them. Here, let me, how can I help you connect to your loved ones? Oh, you don't have your insulin on you. Let me, let me get you to someone who can help you with that being able to um, support their basic needs first. So processing trauma is not necessarily what everyone needs right away, that they may need that later or not. So it's really attending to the individual's needs. That's one of the things that we have learned. And actually, for some people who attended these uh, group debriefings, the repetition of this trauma in the midst of a state where they were really distressed seemed to kind of sear that trauma mm. into like solidified their minds. It. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, you know, they, they found it uh, more difficult to avoid the, the recurrent uh, intrusive memories that we often see in PTSD. So there were things that we didn't know. There were things that we knew. And as a community, a society, we did not implement. So I think another lesson from from 9-11 is that we need to prepare. We need to prepare not just the supplies, although that was also an issue then as it has been early in the COVID uh, pandemic here in New York. But preparing individuals, um, having some element of mental health awareness, well-being, resources available within the work, Um, talking about, yes, resilience, being able to incorporate that, you know, hopefully people will not be exposed to a trauma or some terrible event, but... If they are, they will have something that they will have already prepared them and strengthened some of their internal resources so that they can better cope with the trauma in front
0: of them. So how would you rate our response to COVID-19? What's it been like for you to to see another kind of mass, even larger mass event? It sounds like you do see the signs of progress from 20 years ago.
1: Yes, you know. At Sinai, very early on in the pandemic, the trauma of the health workers, the essential workers, was identified as something that needed to be addressed, and there were mental health teams that were going out, checking in, making themselves available to the staff, having 24-hour kind of hotlines that we manned in case somebody needed us. They knew that we were going to be there. So it was, you know, that support was put into place right away. And within a a very few short months, the Center for Stress and Resilience was established again, an acknowledgement that this is going to be needed, that there was trauma that was going to be need to be addressed. So we, we did implement some of the lessons that were learned.
0: There's so much we can talk about in terms of the incredible resilience of this group of people, this population. One thing or one piece of information that I came across was a stat about the percentage of police, of traditional and non-traditional responders, respectively, who developed PTSD And I was surprised that those numbers are both under 10%. And I was wondering what you make of that and whether that was surprising to you.
1: Well, some of it depends on when the assessments were made. So over the past 20 years, there were assessments that were made a year after 9-11, five years after. The most recent one is, uh, I believe, the 2016 data that we have and the presence of post traumatic stress symptoms at that time within the responder population was about 14% which is about three times the what you would find in the general population the percent of depressive symptoms was a bit lower it was actually very close it was about 12 13%, which again is higher than the general population. So we're talking about 15 years after. If you take a look at the data earlier on, you'll find uh, PTSD symptoms of 30% in the responders. So a message there is that some people are getting better. And we do know that there are different trajectories. The majority of people who are exposed to psychological trauma do not develop PTSD. About 75%, 77% don't. Those who do may recover over a period of time. Some will actually have chronic symptoms. And those are a lot of the people that we see in the program. Uh, Some people will be coping well enough and functioning for a significant period of time. And then something else happens. For some people, it was Hurricane Katrina. Uh, For some, it could be a a personal tragedy. For some, it was COVID. And at that point, the, the symptoms that were under the surface become manifest. And we see that coming out. So it goes back to Knowing the individual, you know, t- taking the time to get to know who they are and what their needs are, because it's going to vary over time. And in addition, there was a very recent paper. Um, I think it was December of 2020 that took a look at post-traumatic growth in the 9/11 responder population, and. That was very interesting because we do a lot of research and work on understanding the negative effects of trauma. And we need to do that because that's how we're going to learn what these individuals need and how to best help them.
0: Let's just take a moment to explain for people who aren't familiar with the term what what we mean by post-traumatic growth. Ever thought about enrolling in a clinical trial? The Mount Sinai Health System has over 800 active clinical trials, each geared toward developing new medicines and treatments. Visit mountsinai.org/ slash clinical trials to see if you're eligible. Mount Sinai, we find a way.
1: Post-traumatic growth is usually described as a positive psychological change that may occur after a traumatic event that results in a higher level of functioning, an improved sense of well being compared to uh, prior to the trauma. So it differs from resilience in that resilience generally focuses on the ability to adapt to adversity and come back to your your baseline functioning. Well, some people actually have an experience of growth. And in this paper that I was referring to, they took a look at individuals with PTSD, and they found that almost 30% of them reported, this was a self-report, significant areas of growth after their trauma and surprisingly these individuals seem to be some of those who had the highest degree of ptsd symptoms
0: what form did that take the growth i mean
1: the paper used a scale known as the post-traumatic growth index and it asks uh, individuals to Answer question from not likely at all to most likely a, a Likert scale regarding a certain domains that we identify as reflecting growth. So things like a sense of well being, quality of relationships, overall functioning. And in this study that was taking a look specifically at 9 11 population identified certain factors, actually two factors that seem to be the most salient for our population. One of them was interconnectedness, a sense that individuals described a greater ability to rely on others or a greater ability to connect with others and and relate uh, with them when it comes to a traumatic event an enhanced trust of others. So interconnectedness seemed to really be an area of positive growth uh, for a significant number of 9-11 individuals. And the other was described as personal growth. And that described reflecting on priorities in life. And finding that, you know, they, they had an opportunity to reflect on what was most important to them in life. And they found that that was very helpful and that that was associated with, with their having gone through the trauma, um, feeling uh, a sense of greater self-confidence or being more self-reliant. So those were the two areas that really seemed to light up for our population now when they took a look at you know or theorized why you know, the interconnectedness you know they went back to well what is it that some of the traditional responders in particular had had uh, in common and that was that connection that social integration social support but uh, essentially they found that any individual who identified a social support and social integration later experience greater post-traumatic growth
0: interesting so you it sounds like you're connecting what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation the the community Mm -hmm. you know the station house the union these places where people can get together and talk that there's a direct connection between that and post-traumatic growth like that is maybe the mechanism
1: yes and, and that is what's being looked at, particularly when there is a shared traumatic experience, like nine eleven, like COVID. You know, when there is a shared experience, being able to be connected and have a community, whether the community is a firehouse or a faith community or an extended family, it's it's having that that support that seems to lend. A protective mantle on individuals that helps them remain kind of whole in in, in times of crisis. And, you know, apparently it also helps them with post traumatic growth, with achieving a state as they reflect on it that says, you know, well, it's not as if they didn't suffer through the trauma, they did. And it was not because of the trauma, but because of the way in which they they struggled and questioned the effect of the trauma and tried to realign their values with, okay, so what does it mean right now? Kind of my world has turned upside down. Let me pause and reflect. And it's in the process of working through that that people end up growing. in in certain ways
0: I was wondering whether you could share a story of somebody that you've worked with who maybe demonstrates this post-traumatic growth that we're talking about
1: in broad strokes I can describe a patient who is a traditional first responder who took on a lot of shifts of work because his idea of taking care of his family involved working a lot of shifts in order to ensure that the kids went to college and he could pay for them that they had a a nice house to live in so that's what he focused on that that was um, it was after 9/11 when he developed some physical symptoms that limited his ability to work eventually had to retire due to these uh physical conditions, a, a chronic um, pulmonary disease from 9-11. It was only after that that he realized that in speaking with his family, because he wasn't speaking much to his family before, because he was working all the time, that what the family actually needed was for him to be around more. That uh, he started coaching uh, his um, his kids, son and daughters, little league uh, teams he started to become more connected to the community because now he was going to these uh, practices and talking to other parents, uh, other families. Um, he feels that despite the losses of 9-11, the losses in terms of his physical health and the suffering that he experienced with his psychological uh, health, um, in the end, he feels closer to his family, closer to his community. And he feels that his uh, set of of personal values, his sense of self and what's meaningful to him, to his life, has been brought into sharper focus. And that may not have happened, he feels, had he not had to struggle and and with uh, 9-11 and the aftermath of it. So that's... And, you know, that that's an individual, but I've heard it in many different versions in a lot of our patients.
0: We've talked a lot about social support, and I suspect that family and loved ones are a big part of that. How do you think about the role of a, of a loved one in that situation?
1: I think that, um, well, first of all, I think that we need to be better prepared to educate family members about trauma, about the effects of trauma, and about what they can do to be helpful because they don't know. They're afraid that if they say something, it might be upsetting to their loved one who experienced some trauma. So helping them understand what they can do, but also helping them understand what some of the effects of trauma are, and that their loved one may actually shut down may actually not want to talk to them. Or for some of our responders, because of their PTSD symptoms, they become very hypervigilant of danger and they become very restrictive. Um, They don't want their kids going away to college because they're afraid. So they become very restrictive and it comes from a place of, of love and wanting to protect their family. But it's important for family members to understand that in order to help minimize family conflict. Um, a lot of families dissolved post 9-11 because there wasn't enough of an understanding about what the individual was going through. The families themselves didn't get the help that they need. And these, some, some uh, responders became estranged from their, their children. So it's important for families to to be educated and be aware. And I can tell you just from my experience of getting to know some of the responders, my patients' families over a period of time, when they feel that they understand what's, what's happening with their loved one and what they can do to help, it brings them closer together. You know, for me to hear family members speak, uh, sometimes just with, with tears, with happy tears in their eyes, about getting their loved one, their spouse, their brother, um, their their parent back after they've gotten treatment, for them to know, okay, it's you know there was this something that was happening, but the person I love was there all along and now there he is, he's back. And it's, it's wonderful to hear that. And uh, families are, are very appreciative.
0: That's a such a powerful image, like brings tears to my eyes. Um, well, I'm noticing we have about 10 minutes left. So I want to make sure Nikki and Emma have a moment to, to ask any questions that have come up. So Nikki and Emma, if you're there, Please feel free to join us. I feel like I had questions, but then you answered them as you were speaking. So I just feel, I feel like this also is just a topic that can, that affects everyone in the country. Even if you don't know someone going through trauma, you know, you know, it's like a third degree, you know, someone you're a loved one's loved one or a friend's loved one. So it's just a topic that even if it doesn't affect you directly, it affects everyone who was there and who experienced some part of it.
1: And the reality is that we ourselves don't know when we will uh, walk into a traumatic situation. So even as you're saying, even if you're not directly connected to someone now or you haven't experienced it yourself, learning about it and learning about what's protective and learning about the importance of support and talking to others and of getting mental health treatment when it's needed. You know, carry that around in your back pocket is is insurance in the event that something terrible happens and terrible things sometimes happen.
0: Can you break that down? So in terms of not in like a paranoid defensive crouch way, but what can a normal person do is kind of like the healthy kind of protective measures knowing that this is a part of life, like this this will happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, there were kind of just the, the basic self-care wellness practices, which are going to be psychological and physical wellness practices. So very simple things, such as get, getting a decent sleep, making sure that you have some boundaries between your work and your recreation social time, uh, that you don't neglect that part. Strengthening your relationships, tending to them like you would tend to a, a beautiful garden. You need to, to tend to relationships every day and invest in them. That's going to make a major difference in the event that you do need it in the future. We need it every day, but when we've gone through something terrible, it's a huge difference for us. You know, your practices such as meditation, exercise, um, you know, getting outdoors, uh, finding a hobby, an activity that you take pleasure in, something that you can turn to in times of, of stress. If faith is a part of your life, strengthening your relationship with the faith community meditation for some individual spirituality in that form so these are things that we can do and these are good things for us to do every day and they're going to protect us in the event that we need it
0: dr love thank you so much first and foremost for your work and also for joining us on road resilience
1: thank you very much
0: Dr. Sandra Lowe is a psychiatrist and medical director of the World Trade Center Mental Health Program here at Mount Sinai. That's all for this episode of Road to Resilience. The podcast is a production of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's made by me, John Earl, Nikki Cheatham, Emma Stoneham, and our executive producer, Lucia Lee. From all of us, as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.